0: Hi there, my name is Pete, this is Social Distancer. Thank you so much for listening wherever you are in the world and we've got a show for you. Now, there's a couple of things to look at today. We are going to be looking at COVID in the UK and looking at what we can expect the Sausage to announce on Monday with his big rollout of his big plan of how to get out of lockdown. And also we're going to be talking about Ted Cruz who took a holiday into fucking Cancun in Mexico while uh, Texas is freezing its bollock off. (laughs) And I'm going to describe um, this incredible uh, event, which I suppose you could call a coincidence, but maybe it's something other than a coincidence that happened a couple of days ago to me and one of my oldest and most trusted and closest friends, who is an outstanding writer and she wrote about this, and I've um, been in touch with her. And so if she's allowed me to read out her writing on this subject, which is much better than me, I would have put, put like oh, amazing coincidence and then a fucking emoji of somebody laughing. you know, you know the side laugh guy. And she's does it you know a bit better than that. So I'll come to that later on. And a couple of other little bits and bobs. But first, (laughs) first, oh, by the way, thank you so much. If you're the, I don't know who it is still, the person that's listening to every episode. They're very, you know, I think it's every episode. Certainly they're deep diving the archive. So anyway, thank you very much. But first, this. Have you ever seen the sunshine? No, not pork. Sunshine. Then say pork. I know you've seen pork. It's that sunshine. And after the Sigur Ross uh, outro music, we're going to have Paranormal Blip. It looks as if roughly half of the audience are into this paranormal th- stuff. The other half, you're not. So if you're not into it, then obviously don't listen to it after the outro music. But if you are, that's where you'll find it. And today we're going to be looking at what's known as, like, hilariously enough, It's known as the Washington Flap, also known as the 1952 Washington UFO Incident. It's an incredible uh, incident, brilliantly like you know, evidenced um, from a wide variety of sources. And also we're going to be talking about Robert Bigelow as well. So there's a few things for the um, paranormal blip. That's after the end credits. But first of all, we're going to go. Cruising? Oh, that's good, isn't it? Because his name is Cruz. Yeah, yeah, Cruz. Tired from an insurrection you incited against your government? Is your state suffering from predictable consequences of a natural disaster caused by your failed leadership? Then it's time for you to throw your constituents and constitution away and escape to Cancun. Constituents underwater, you can be too on one of our reef and shipwreck snorkeling tours. Feeling homesick? Visit the Mayan ruins. No electricity, undrinkable water. It's like you never left Houston. So hurry up, flee in glee, and bask in the glow of Red Hot Sedition in Cancun. There's an advert there from Medius Touch. I think that's how you pronounce them. Um, lampooning Ted Cruz for deciding to take a vacation to Cancun in Mexico, a kind of luxury beach holiday resort. Meet me at the Ritz is what his, uh, his wife texted to her friends, um, seemingly arranging all of this. Uh, nice little getaway when Texas is undergoing a historic snowfall. It's coldest it's been for 30 years. 47 people, at least, have died connected to these snowstorms and millions of people were left without any electricity, any power whatsoever. And also millions of people were told to boil their water, for fuck's sake. difficult to boil your water if you don't have any fucking energy coming into the house. Um, So in this kind of fury and uproar, Ted Cruz decides, oh, let's just get the fuck out of it. I mean, it is incredible. What checks and balances are there in these people's lives, you know? You would think he would be very, very busy dealing with this shit. Even if he's not hands-on, like, speaking to the energy company all the fucking time, speaking to whoever's, like, you know, on the ground trying to sort shit out all the time. Even if he's not doing that, surely he's got somebody there, like an advisor or someone, that says it's probably not a good idea... To like fly to where it's nice and warm, <laughs> it's unbelievable. And of course, he was photographed in the airport. He was photographed on the plane. And although he had tickets to come back this weekend on Saturday tomorrow, as I record this, of course, like you know, when he found out that the shit had hit the flan on Twitter, he then immediately, like you know, booked, came back, t- blamed his daughters, fucking snake. Oh, yeah, my daughter's wanted to have a break. Oh, fuck off, you fucking prick. So he's basically in lots of sh- hot shit. The only hot thing in Texas is the hot shit that cruises is in. Um, you know, will there be consequences? Well, who knows? He's not up for re-election for a long, long time because recently he beat Beto, as we all know, a couple of years ago. So, um, you know, we'll see. But it's good that he's getting the shit that he's getting now i do know that i know uh, that i I know i know i do that i've got at least one listener in texas i think she's in the houston area Uh, she's a friend of a friend this is how i know that she listens so if you are listening or at least she did listen at some point but obviously if you are in texas and if you're anywhere in anywhere in the world who's undergoing it's quite a severe winter in britain as well so, you know, anywhere in, anywhere in the world, anywhere in anywhere in the world, if you're undergoing kind of, you know, shit weather, then obviously take care of yourselves. And, um, yeah, Ted Cruz, eh? What, who would have thought that he would be a motherfucker? You know, he's, we always thought that he was the sedition motherfucker, the insurrection motherfucker. But no, he's the abandon, abandon the voters at their moment of crisis motherfucker. So on Monday, this extraordinary event happened, and we, uh, it's half term in the UK at the moment, so that means that we've got a little bit of time to do what we like. And so we went up to Dartmoor, a new part of Dartmoor that we'd never been to before, called Hound Tor. And Hound Tor is called Hound Tor because apparently the tours, which are great big kind of rocks, look like lots and lots of hounds lots of dogs all stacked up together and they don't look like this at all but uh, you know you've got to name it something so they named it hound tour it's a good name though isn't it hound tour and um it's pretty impressive stuff the, the tours are quite big you know i mean too big for me to climb but everyone else but well, most people climbed the um, the tors, not me though, not me though. Some people, but not me though, climbed the tors. Anyway, uh, after the tors though, you've got a medieval village dating to the 13th century, and this part of Dartmoor was inhabited uh, up to the 15th century apparently. But this particular medieval village, which consists of a couple of uh, stone longhouses, I've just looked this up. I don't know. I didn't know this. And we're looking around the ruins thinking, when was this from? I don't know. But um, yeah, anyway, it's 13th century and that's pretty impressive. I mean, you can see very clearly the, you know, outlines of all of the rooms even, you know, in the different houses, which is incredible. It's all overgrown, obviously, overgrown now and it's not really protected in any way, but it's kind of on moorland, you know. Uh, And then after that, there's a kind of uh, other kind of series of rocks, kind of like... um, Another tour, I think that's called Greater Tour, maybe? I think so. And uh, it was there that we, uh, by total chance, met a very good friend of mine, Emma. There's a good chance that if you're listening to this, you know me and you know Emma. There's a small chance that you don't know either of us and you just listen to this because you like the fucking sound of my voice. (laughs) But, um, so, you know, Emma. Right? We're talking about Emma Emma is a very good writer, and she wrote a response to this to this coincidence. So here's her response: It would be impossible to convey the improbability of what happened on Dartmoor on Monday this week—an uncanny convergence beyond words. Despite serious concerns, we had made it out of the village and up to Hound Tor, past the cluster of ruined houses in the deserted medieval village and up onto another rocky hill. We had hesitated to visit Dartmoor, worried that it may be too far from our front door. It was a real joy, though, to be there to soak up a very different landscape and a wider set of coordinates. We were having a play about with sound, some rocks and my phone, finding out what happens when two bodies stand apart and sound across a distance towards one another. I was listening and looking through my phone camera, buffeted by wind, when I heard another very distinct voice emerging. I immediately stopped filming as I recognised the voice of a very old friend approaching in the distance. I stopped filming, turning across the space to both Lee and Theo and saying, Is that P? Sure enough, they both agreed and we waited with bated breath for a few moments before P and his partner Z appeared over the hill with their young son, who is also called Theo. We stood stunned and staring, amazed and laughing wholeheartedly at this seemingly profound coincidence. It would be impossible to convey just how unlikely this meeting was to occur at that point in space and time on that day. I once heard a story of voices frozen in air, trapped there during a cold winter until they thawed. These particular voices happen within the bounds of a 16th century novel, Pantagruel the Noble, by Rabelius. Sailing through A frozen wasteland, the ship's men hear whining horses and battle cries. At first they are terrified by their invisible counterparts. The encounter suggests a passage of time that words may have to wait, may have to pause in air before they can thaw. Certain communications may not be ready to be heard or to be able to be received. Pantagruel explains, I remember too that Aristotle maintains Homer's words to be bounding, flying and moving, and consequently alive. Antiphones also said that Plato's teaching was like words that congeal and freeze on the air when uttered in the depths of winter in some distant country. That is why they are not heard. He said as well as Plato's lessons to young children were hardly understood by them until they were old. This encounter with frozen voices also reminds me of the distinct possibility of place itself having a memory, a porousness an alertness to the interconnectedness of things, everything in relation everything, the overlaying of many-worlds theory. In a long-ago conversation with ecological scientist Dr Christian Taylor on this subject, we say, "Okay, so imagine there are many rooms. In one he eats an apple, she watches his teeth bite, and cannot remember what he said. In another he explains the theory of relativity, and a fly hits the window outside. In another, she takes his hat off and begins to lick the walls of the room whilst barking like a dog. All these rooms are postulated to exist to be possible by science. We apparently choose the most likely set of events to occur and understand ourselves as existing present in that particular time space. Perhaps reality steers the most likely course of events in a given instant, as if aiming for the most probable scenario, given all the different possibilities. What actually happens in any instant may be a convergence of probabilities involving all the players and interacting variables, says Taylor. So if all these other rooms are existing an infinite number of rooms and possibilities, then where are they happening and how? How do all these possibilities and events fit into the universe? Are they layered side by side or are similarly inter-transparent events lingering around on top of another? A thousand million simultaneous rooms layered on top of each other in one single room. A buzzard circling in the sky. Lee touches my arm and points. Life and stillness in the air do not normally happen together. It is unusual, remarkable for something to hover, to be suspended. I once heard the human voice described as a relay wind carried on air, the voice leaving the tongue, mouth, lips, traveling, hovering through the air until it enters the ear of the other, or doesn't. So thank you so much, Emma, for writing that and for allowing me to share it with an audience uh, out there and, I mean, it's incredible. If you just think of the maths, what are the chances of two, like, family groups uh, meeting up, without planning it, somewhere on Dartmoor? I mean, miles away from bo- where both of us live. We live qu- a lot closer to houndtor but it's quite a good drive away from, um, you know, where Emma lives. And obviously, you know, if you know Dartmoor, there's plenty of places to go on Dartmoor. There's, there's no obvious we've been travelling around Dartmoor for the last year you know going here, there and everywhere we'd never been to Handor before you know so it was very hot just mathematically what are the chances of that reminds me of the morphic resonance theory of uh, Rupert Sheldrakes um, who talks about uh, kind of patterns of behaviour within uh, communities and essentially kind of communication between uh friends and you know communities family members um so that's uh, interesting reminds me of that and yeah this many worlds theory is very interesting as well now speaking of that kind of thing um a friend of mine got this beautiful he's got his hands on this beautiful play mode bill delorean from the back to the future series and got to put it together but it all lights up and it looks gorgeous and also there's a Ghostbusters one as well isn't it so that's good isn't it yeah but there isn't a kit one and you know do you remember kit there isn't a kit kit you remember kit from Knight Rider and my friend was saying that maybe it's a bit too um, you know, niche <laughs> not niche, but just not as like mainstream, I mean you can't get more mainstream than Ghostbusters and Back to the Future you know what I mean, it's not as if uh, you know, Night Rider was a kind of sleeper hit or whatever it was a massive show but you know, think of the Playmobil accountants you know, they want bang for their buck don't they, yes, so you can't just you know, shove any old kit down people's throat On Monday, Sausage Johnson is going to outline the way to get out of lockdown and it's expected that schools are going to go back on March the 8th and apparently there are conversations in the government about whether they do it as a big bang, as they're calling it, everyone back on the same day. And scientists and teachers unions are saying, well, that's not a great idea, you know, Um, obviously. And, uh, you know, they're saying, listen, bring uh, primary school children back first. And then, you know, the week after, bring back the uh, people that have got exams this year and do it gradually, you know, kind of over the course of a couple of weeks. Now, that is how they were going to open schools uh, in January after you know, at the start of the term, the term after um, after Christmas. And obviously those plans were abandoned when we went into lockdown. So I expect that they will do something uh, slightly staggered, but maybe not as staggered as the January plans. Maybe I don't know exactly what. But the idea, I mean, you know, schools do have testing regimes in place now and the staff are being tested twice a week. Uh, in every school I know and uh, now also in SEN schools quite a lot of the staff are getting vaccinated we've also got vaccinations for anybody with extreme um, you know kind of medical sensitivities to COVID-19 and anyone over the age of 70 as well there might be a few people working in schools over the age of 70 Um, now having said that A couple of days ago, I was sent an email from Hattie Mancock himself um, saying, because you're on the shielding list, we are asking you to stay shielding until March the 31st. And I was quite surprised to receive the same email. Um, Number one, this is against the, or kind of supersedes, obviously, but also contradicts the advice that I was given by the nurse when I got my first jab. Uh, just over two weeks ago, she said, "Well, you can go back in three weeks' time." So I was actually on the rotor to start back at at work on site at work in the school uh, from the end of next week after the three weeks had elapsed, you know, elapsed. But I've had to obviously contact my um, bosses and say, "Well, I've you know I've received this email, so I can't come back. So I am going to be working from home until." 31st of March now the 1st of April is the last day of term until the uh, and then the you know Easter holidays kick in so of course you know if I do go back it will only be for that one day Um, and also it makes me think that you know because this is that they also uh, a group a a, a university I can't remember which one I think maybe something connected to Oxford maybe I don't know But they looked at the um, death rate and the hospitalisation rate from COVID-19. Remember, over 120,000 people have died in the UK from COVID-19. I mean, it is an absolute fucking tragedy, you know. And all these fucking Tory pricks, who it's always been a right-wing country, you know, like certainly all throughout my life, you know, I'm 45 years old for Christ's sake. And um, throughout that, you know, these fucking idiots vote Tory. And when they don't vote Tory, they vote Blair. And I've said in the past that Blair, you know, did some excellent things in government in terms of, you know, redressing the balance. But you couldn't exactly call him a leftist. I mean, nobody would call him that. And I certainly won't call him that, you know. So a little bit of snifter of good news. And of course... The, like unbelievably the fucking toys are ahead in the polls you know more people think that the sausage is a better candidate to be prime minister than uh, starmer and starmer i know i'm going off on one uh, you know a little bit but starmer had this you know thing of this uh, speech basically where he tried to kind of you know reset the debate about uh, you know everything up until now, his criticism has been that the government are incompetent. well they're not only incompetent, they were found to be in breach of law in terms of the trans the transparency around PPE. Um, Hattie Mancock and the government were found to be uh, breaking the law because the PPE contracts essentially you know it's been described as a money laundering scheme. Um, whereby they enrich their friends. And we've covered this, you know, a lot, My Little Crony, all the rest of it. But nevertheless, they're still ahead of the pot. I mean, it's unbelievable, you know? Now, uh, uh, we know the reason for that. The reason, well, there's loads of reasons for that. One immediate reason is that 15 million people have been vaccinated, and that's really, really good. But of course, then they're kind of like on the sly almost... They say, well, actually, we probably do need to get a lot of more people in the shielding group because we don't actually know what's going to happen, especially with these new variants popping up and down. They're trying to get on top of the South Africa variant by doing surge testing, as they call it. But it's, you know, they basically they don't know where the South Africa variant is. Thankfully, it's in so small numbers that it doesn't look as it's going to come close to becoming the dominant variant anytime soon, you know? And the R is down. The R fell down a little bit more today. It's 0.9 to 0.6 across the country. So that's good. So, you know, every week that goes by, um, the R goes down a little bit more. But obviously, when they open schools, all of that is upended, and the R should jump probably by 0.5. Well, if it's 0.6 now then, you know, add 0.5 onto that, then it's above 1. Yeah, that's good fucking maths and tad. So this shielding group, the, this Oxford uh, group, I think, connected to Oxford University, looked at the amounts of, like, who is being hospitalised, who is dying from COVID-19. Oh, what a surprise. It's poor people and it's people from black and minority ethnic uh, communities so a whole bunch of other kind of like you know groups have been put in this in this shielding category okay if you have obesity if you have various other things which weren't kind of included at uh, the first time and uh, I've said like in the past that you know my heart condition is a particular very rare heart condition and I wasn't put on the shielding list It was only when my doctor intervened, the good fucking doctor, the doctor in London who saved my life and who is like, probably the most impressive person I've ever met. Like, you know, and I've met impressive people, you know, but probably the number one most impressive person I've ever met. I mean, a genuine life-saving person, but essentially a superhero in human form. And only when she got involved was I like, okay, yeah, here's your fucking shielding there, you know, problem pal, you know? And now I'm on the shielding list and all the rest of it, but it doesn't. But it does, you know, from the kind of criteria that was set in in March. I wasn't on that shielding list. We were shielding because my uh, partner's uh, sister was living with us. All the deep dive dudes, the archive motherfuckers, the people that have heard all of this know this. But there's a group of you that don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Oh yeah, go back. Yeah, episode thirty. That's a good one. Don't know what happened in episode 30. Um, so anyway, uh, 1.7 million people have been added to the shielding list. The shielding list, like group, has been told to stay in until March the 31st. And that makes me think that they are very wary about the new variant. This study came out the other day saying that the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca, uh vaccine it only guards against um the South Africa variant by 10%. I mean, that's not very good. Obviously, it's better than not 10%. You know, it's not very fucking good. (laughs) Like, it basically doesn't work against the South Africa variant. So thank fuck the South Africa variant isn't around much in the UK. And we've got stories now of people in Europe saying, no, no, I don't want this um, Oxford-AstraZeneca variant. And a lot of this is... uh, The uh, the, uh, Oxford vaccine has been politicised to some extent, like fucking Macron coming out and saying that, you know, it's um, not as safe as the other one. And, you know, you don't need that bullshit. There's enough, you know, uh, pressure on people to kind of comb through the evidence and work out that it's safe anyway. And on that, by the way, people with um, allergies are being told not to take the Pfizer um, uh, vaccine and as and I think I've covered it but the the, initially during the first couple of days or the first couple of weeks of the Pfizer vaccine being given uh, to people in Britain uh, there were two occasions where people that have got allergies severe allergies they had a a allergic reaction to the vaccine and therefore the advice went out I'm sure I did cover this the advice went out don't take it if you've got severe allergies and then they went back and they thought well actually there's a tiny 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 proportion of people with severe allergies that will have any effect with this vaccine. Now having said that uh, people with severe allergies are being told by their GPs and are being told when they actually turn up to get the Pfizer vaccine no 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 you can't have it because you've got a severe allergy. It was one of the screening questions But I really thought that that had been kind of sorted, you know, and that it's only if you're allergic to a particular, like to something in, there's not many things in the vaccine, like they know the ingredients of the Pfizer vaccine. And it looks as if the kind of healthcare people giving out the vaccine are a bit more cautious than Pfizer themselves. From Pfizer's point of view, they're saying, if you're allergic to anything in the vaccine, obviously don't take it. But if you're not allergic to the stuff in the vaccine, then it's safe for you to take. But in the real world, when somebody's there, you know, offering their arm, as it were, the nurses and the, you know, kind of healthcare care experts um, advising the nurses and GPs as well are saying, no, no, don't take that. Just wait for the Oxford one. So that's happening quite a lot as well. Uh, Anyway, so we're shielding, so that means that I'm in this kind of weird position of, you know, having contacted all my mates at work saying, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, you know, party time. (laughs) And now, like, well, I'm not coming back for fuck's sake, you know, and uh, what I expect to happen is that there will be a uh, a kind of quite a quick... Return to school, but it won't be wham bam, thank you, ma'am, all in one day, but it will be like over the course of maybe two weeks or so. That you know, on the, the 8th of March, for instance, you know, the majority of uh, primary school kids go back, and maybe a couple of years in secondary go back, and then from the whatever the next. I don't know, what what would it be, the um, 17th of March, is that right? No, no, the the 15th of March, is that right? Whatever the next uh, Monday is, then everyone else will go back as well. Um, But so then we've got the schools going back, and then it's going to take a couple of weeks for the R to creep up, you know. And then we've got a big problem in terms of uh, what happens next. There will be a massive number of people who are then slowly getting their second jabs in. If you're on Pfizer, it's good. It looks like it's between 75% and 95% I read today of protection with one jab, which is really good. Beforehand, I thought it was about 65, 67 or something like that. But it looks like now people are saying at least 75%. Uh, with one jab and then of course it goes up to around about 95% jab with uh, percent with two jabs and because there's this 12 week delay between the one and two jabs in the UK we're doing 3 million people a day if you calculate it all uh, sorry not 3 million people a day, 3 million people a week if you calculate it all that means that everybody, every adult in the country should have both jabs by mid-September that's on three million a week. If we can get it up to five million a week, that means every adult in the country can have it done by, uh, I think it's the beginning of August, which is incredible if you think about it. Absolutely incredible. And I expect to get my jab in, well, I only had it two weeks ago. So, you know, I've got um, 10 weeks at the most to wait for my for my second jab. And it's funny because I feel quite kind of bullish and confident Mainly because I'm in the southwest, because I'm in Devon and it's very, very low here and it's, you know, it's um, going down, slowly it's going down, but it's basically around where it was at the, at the start of October, so about a month into the scores going back, just at the beginning of the big climb that then led to the second lockdown, you know, in November... Um, but but now this time it's still going down, and it will go down for the next couple of weeks until the schools open. The big question then is, how much does the schools push the R uh, up, and does it push it above 1? And if it does push it above 1, then we're looking at you know no time soon for anything else to open, basically, you know? So yeah, it's uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens on Monday. I might do a little special or add something onto this, and if I do, I'll put it here. So here I am. I'm back. It's Monday night, and Sausage Johnson did say some interesting things. So here I am, recording a little bit of a roundup. Uh, the big news, the headline, from my point of view, is that they have said yes, let's wear masks in classrooms. For secondary school pupils, which is really good, is something that I've wanted for, well, ever since, you know, the schools went back after the first lockdown. Seems blatantly obvious to me, like a good idea. And, you know, kind of uh, listeners to this show will know that it's something I've, like, ranted on about for ages. So it's unbelievable that it's happening. Although it's only happening for three weeks, like, um, ridiculously. Leading up to Easter, um, it must be extended after the Easter holiday. The way it's working is that all schools, so they are doing the big bang thing, all school pupils are going back on March the 8th, they're in school for three weeks, and then it's the two-week Easter holiday, and then we're into the summer term, and it's five weeks uh, between each of the stages. And the stages basically look like this. A so step one on the 8th of March, schools are opening and there's a one-to-one outdoor activity. So at the moment you can exercise with one person. So go for a walk or whatever, or do your, do your javelin with one person. But from the 8th of March, you'll be able to uh, have a picnic with one person. And then 29th of March, the rule of six is back uh outdoor sports continue uh or come back so you know people in their own kind of amateur football club or whatever um then step two which so so this is it was it was called you know kind of dates not uh sorry dates are not dates but there are quite a lot of dates but the sausage did say you know th- these are the earliest for these things and they're five weeks spread apart so this is a kind of best case scenario. Now, the big thing, uh, my kind of takeaway, basically, is that I think it's pretty good because it is paced out very well. And the vaccines do make a big difference, you know? And witty said, I think it was witty or Jeff Valance, one of them said tonight, you know, the, the relationship between the R number and the severity of the disease, obviously, changes if many 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 people are vaccinated do you know what I mean and they like kept saying kept saying kept saying we've got to get into this kind of thing in our heads that this is a thing that we're gonna always have to be with always have to live with and you know we said that like weeks ago um, 20,000 roughly um, deaths from the flu it's going to be something like that I read 30,000 is what they're thinking is going to happen. Uh, 30,000 deaths, basically, um, from COVID-19 is going to be something that we're going to have to live with. We know that they're not interested in eliminating COVID. They never have been, and they're not now. And old Sausage Johnson was saying it would be impossible to. Well, I'm not sure about that, but I do know that in the, um, the choice between eliminating it for it to be something like measles whereby you've got a vaccine against measles and essentially like, you know, tiny little outbreaks happen, but it's very rare in Britain for measles. And there's a massive amount of protection and herd immunity from, um, you know, the measles vaccine or the flu, whereby we've got a huge flu vaccine rollout every year. But, you know, 17,000 people on average die every year. Well, they've gone for that route, you know, they've thought, well, we're going to protect a massive amount of people, but there probably will be 30,000 people that die from COVID-19 every year. Most of them, you know, may well have been vaccinated, but of course, the vaccine isn't 100%. And of course, if you vaccinate, you know, like millions of people, even 40 million people, then a very small percentage of that is still going to be, you know, a couple of 10,000 people or so. And then there'll be a whole bunch of people that aren't going to be vaccinated for whatever reason. You know, extremely vulnerable people, they might have uh, allergies, they might have particular reasons why the choice has been made that it's a, more of a risk for them to have the vaccine. And therefore, they're open to getting severe reactions and death, That's the severest of reactions, um, if they get COVID 19. So, you know, we've got to kind of get our heads around that as a society. And as somebody that's shielding, I've got to get my head around the idea that, you know, I'm probably not going to go to a bloody nightclub. You know what I mean? Like, luckily I'm too old to go to a nightclub anyway. So I wouldn't, you know, I'm not going to be miss, miss out on much there. And my life will probably change, you know, in a way that um, it would not have changed if COVID-19 didn't exist, but I can live with that and it looks like you know so let's go back to this um this steps thing but it looks like uh, fingers crossed this might work and of course we do know that we do have this new um, kind of stretch goal of vaccinating every adult or at least offering the vaccination to every adult in the UK by the middle of July if that happens and of course, there's going to be some people that don't get vaccinated and there's going to be some people that can't get vaccinated. And then there's a big question about, well, obviously, children aren't going to be vaccinated. No children are going to be vaccinated. The um, Oxford Zeneca, AstraZeneca um, group said that they are looking at trials for children, which is brilliant. So that might be something that, you know, happens, happens later on. Um, you know, but even when everybody's vaccinated of course if you're shielding you're going to have to kind of adapt to that in a way which is much more different than if you're you know 25 years old and you don't have any underlying health conditions or whatever like the risk then if there's very 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 little amount in the community then the risk is you know negligible you know that you're going to have uh, any kind of adverse reaction especially if you've been vaccinated you know Um, So anyway, step 2, not before the 12th of April, non-essential shops and hairdressers can open, theme parks and zoos can open, holiday lets and camping can happen and outdoor hospitality, so that means beer gardens, that's the 12th of April at the earliest. Um, Step 3, 17th of May at the earliest, indoor, you can go indoors. Um, with up to six people from different households, so that's a you know kind of big moment in terms of the uh, the, the kind of viability of this. Basically, you know there may be surges in different places uh, when people start going indoors a lot more when they've got the kind of you know legal permission to do that. Indoor hospitality as well, so that's when pubs are opening. But then again, it's the 17th of May. So now it's just the 22nd of February. So we're talking about, you know, a good couple of months away until this is happening. Yeah, gyms and indoor sports uh, places can open. Rule of six is lifted outdoors. So, so you can meet up to 30 outside stadiums of up to 10,000 spectators. So obviously some kind of social distancing will happen in stadiums and then step four, not before the 21st of June, nightclubs and the remaining sectors, no more limits on social contact. Um, So nightclubs open then. And then they were asked about this. The idea then on the 21st of June or sometime after that uh, is that social distancing is is dropped for various places and in various places and i imagine that there'll be a kind of note to that whereby shoulders are advised to you know not to congregate in inside like you know what i mean like just be aware that if you go to a busy bar or whatever then you're obviously putting yourself at greater risk you know um yeah so that's you know the big Thing is that masks on kids mean that, hopefully, that will suppress like even more suppress the R. And we've got a couple of weeks for the R to get down. And also, like which he was saying, you know, the R is less important when you've got a massive amount of people being vaccinated. Now we don't have that yet. We won't have that in a couple of weeks' time. So there is a chance. Well, we know that the R is going to jump when schools go back. And, you know, they, Sage, we also know that Sage advised for a staged, a a staggered return with scores. And they haven't done that, you know. But it is really, really good that they're putting masks on the faces of the secondary school children. And also the advice is for all staff in primary and early years as well to wear masks, okay? Not the kids, but the staff to wear masks in classrooms so that will suppress the virus to a certain extent in in classrooms as well well run even large secondary schools you know they can avoid breakouts even when it's in the community like it is possible to do that you've got to be rigorous and you've got to be really on it and it's incredibly stressful but it also can happen yeah but of course you know you want to have it as low as possible in the community, and that's why we've got five weeks where the schools are going to be open for three of those weeks, and then two more weeks, and then they're going to look at opening something else afterwards, you know, like in stage in stage two. So overall, really good. Um, let's see how it goes, you know, but really, really quite sober, uh, good news. The riskiest thing is the thing they're doing at the beginning, but then after that, uh, you know it's well paced, and it's quite sober, and you know hopefully it will work. But yeah, that's the situation in the UK at the moment. Episode two one one. Hope you enjoyed it. Have a great weekend if it's a weekend. Now I've put a call out to all the people that have contributed to this, all back in the like ancient past of this podcast, late like last year, asking them for their reflections on the covid year because our one year anniversary is coming up in a couple of weeks time and brilliantly a lot of people have said yes which is fantastic so i'll start doing that in a couple of weeks time after this is a paranormal blip and we're going to think of the swan 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 one two three walk between the raindrops take care of yourselves have a fantastic week and thank you so much for listening it is so brilliant to know that you're out there after you know so many episodes listening so take care of yourselves see you later (laughs) That music could only mean that it is paranormal blip. Now, on today's episode of Paranormal Blip, we are going to be looking at the Washington flap, also known as the Washington UFO incident. And we're going to be looking at Robert Bigelow. What do we know about Bigelow? And uh, the idea here is that I'm going to briefly mention these two, well, one person and one event. And if you're interested, you know, you can kind of take it on board and do it yourself, you know. Uh, Do it yourself, I don't, yeah. So first of all, the Washington flap, also known as the Washington 1952 UFO incident. Basically what happened was in July 1952 a series, there was a big uh, number of UFOs uh, identified by many many people over the course of a couple of days, a ten-day period, um, bookended by two weekends where there was lots and lots of activity including UFOs Uh, Going into the center of Washington DC in the United States over Congress and uh, You know the Air Force not being able to kind of do anything about it Uh, there is audio of a a person Flying one of those airplanes that they have Saying that he's basically surrounded by UFOs Um, And it was like seen by many many people it obviously made headlines it made front-page news Truman himself, old Harry Truman, remember him? Remember Harry Truman when you were back in your 1900s? Yeah. And uh, he was concerned. And uh, the, 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 basically, what came out of the uh, Washington flap was that communication had broken down, essentially, like, you know, phone communication. Uh, got to the point where everybody was in such a buzz about the UFOs over Washington, the communication, uh, you know, infrastructure couldn't cope with the amount of calls that were trying to be sent and uh, received, okay? Much like fucking, you know, Texas at the moment, you know what I mean? Um, so so what came out of it was uh, two things number one that they had to like really look at this and they were already in 52 the US government were already looking at UFOs and trying to investigate UFOs and although they publicly say oh yeah we used to do it now the Pentagon's uh, position publicly is oh yeah we used to do it but we don't do it anymore but we, you know, people that know about UFOs, George Knapp, for instance, is the go-to guy um, on this. The, this amazing reporter, who's a kind of guru in this area, and I'll talk about George in later uh, paranormal blip episode. But you know, if you know about UFOs, you know that the U.S. government, not only the U.S. government, but every government, are uh, kind of monitoring them as best as possible, and so. You know, they kind of stepped up proceedings, but mainly what they did was that they realized that they couldn't get in the position ever again of having their communications infrastructure, um, you know, kind of jeopardized like this. Yeah. So they decided after the UFO, after the Washington flap, as it's hilariously called, a bit more than a fucking flap, a bunch of fucking UFOs turning up, eh? Um, after that, they said, well, what basically what we won't do is ever publicize it again. We'll just talk about the cases that we can debunk. And we'll go out there and say, oh, no, it's all a load of old hunkum, a load of old hunkum, a load of old hokum And the National Enquirer then later on in the 70s, um, who were kind of vastly, like massively responsible for essentially kind of parodying and um, undermining the idea of UFOs. Uh, because, you know, like, you know, my sister-in-law's had a baby and she's a UFO and, you know, I, Elvis came back and Elvis is living on Mars. All that bollocks, you know, the kind of um, public perception of the ridiculousness of UFOs. A lot of that came out of the National Enquirer and the National Enquirer was working with the US government. And like, it sounds like a fucking conspiracy theory, but it's actually like, you know, we know that this this happened, you know? So there was a... a, a a clear-headed attempt to try to debunk the whole idea of UFOs coming out of the Washington Flap, okay? So in this Paranormal Blip series, I'm going to try to give you a bit of the context around why we think in particular ways about UFOs and about the paranormal as well, yeah? If, like, scientifically, if we were to kind of approach quite a lot of these phenomena... Without all of the baggage that we have in our heads and all of the kind of, you know, our own cultural conceptions of how we view this stuff then we would look at it with a much kind of clearer sense of, well, you know, follow the evidence like you would in any other fucking, you know, scientific endeavor, do experiments follow the evidence, try to work out what is going on, you know, and nothing is impossible. So as improbable as it may seem, if you've ruled out everything else, then you might have to start thinking about something that's that's improbable, you know. Um, but all of that was uh, undermined by the US government's response to the, uh, the Washington flap, as it's known. So if you want to know more about that, then Google... Washington, D.C. 1952 UFO incident, or Google Washington flap, and you'll find out lots of information about that. And now, Robert Bigelow. Now, Robert Bigelow is a really fascinating character. So, Bigelow was born in 1945, so that makes him 75 years old as I speak. Maybe he's 76 now. Uh, no, I think he's 75. And... At the age of so he grew up in um las vegas right and when he was a kid those fucking wacky americans were letting off bloody nuclear weapons in the nevada desert and he saw these from his home in the in the las vegas area like at a distance obviously and when he was 12 he decided that he wanted to go into space he wanted to kind of devote himself into uh, kind of like learning about space travel i guess he wanted to be an astronaut quite a lot of 12 year olds want to do that but he had the sense of mind to take it seriously and when he was 18 he lost his father i think he was 18 years old he, his dad died and he told himself what i'm going to do is make enough money to uh, bring together a team of people that can answer the two biggest questions that basically every human being, when all is said and done, no matter where they live or what religion they have, if any religion, or whatever it is, whatever circumstance in their life, the two fundamental questions of every human life is, and wait for it, because I'll give you the answers in a minute, is, oh, the tape's not out, (laughs) the tape is, what happens when you die that's a good question isn't it yeah do you want to know the answer i can tell you and it sounds slightly sinister that isn't it very ominous and what's the other one um <laughs> what's oh no oh yeah is there life beyond earth right is there other life forms in the universe they're the two biggies aren't they yeah and so, old uh, Robert Bigelow, he was fucking thinking about, talking about Bigelow, big ideas alone. He was thinking about this when he was back in the day, like a fucking kid, right? A fucking kid. And his dad dies. He says, Right, okay, there you go. Here's another question for you, pal. What happens when you die? And incredibly, he went to university, he went to business school, and he bought up a series of hotels, and he became a billionaire. I mean, this is. Absolutely extraordinary life that this man is, has had, right? He's walking around putting his trousers on just like the rest of us, hey, living this extraordinary life. Robert Bigelow, look him up. Google Robert Bigelow. And uh, what happens is that he basically does, he makes enough money to convene a group uh, which is called NIDS, which I think is called the uh, National Institute for Discovery Science or something like that. And on that, he has this amazing panel of people to kind of guide the research, okay? And this is essentially a parapsychology um, science group, okay? So they're looking at, you know, the paranormal. They're looking at things that are outside the bounds of, you know, kind of conventional uh, science, yep. And so they're looking at these questions of, you know, does consciousness like live outside the body? Does like life go on in some way after we die? Uh, are there is there life on other planets? You know, now mathematically, like ov- it's fucking obvious that there's life on other planets. We know now that roughly uh, there's 12 planets in every um, you know solar system, and there's many, many like you know billions of galaxies like this one, right? Is it a solar system or a galaxy? I never fucking know. My researcher is like, oh, it's a, research. It's a galaxy. <laughs> he can tell me. But anyway, there's 12, whenever there's a sun, there's 12 planets, okay? So you've got a good chance that one of them is going to be something like Earth at some point. I mean, we now know the Mars rover, the latest rover, Perseverance, dropped down on Mars yesterday. And they're saying, oh yeah, like Mars was like the Earth, like you know, a couple of whatever, whenever it was, a billion years ago, whatever, a billion. I'm just guessing, um, but you know, so so there, there could have been life on Mars at some point in the in the past, you know, in the kind of ancient past, but a past that's not, you know, we even even we like fucking babies, we are babies, even we can analyze the rocks and work out what well, you know there was water and blah 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 so you know that's just mars okay so if there's like potentially life on mars obviously there's going to be life in you know other planets where there's billions of other planets for Christ's sake so mathematically it works out that there must have been life on other planets probably is life on other planets as well anyway bigelow right he said right i want to get this uh, going I'm going to create NIDS, as they're called. It sounds a bit like NADS, doesn't it? You should have called it NADS. <laughs> and on NIDS, he put on the most amazing people, this guy called Jacques Vallée, who I'll talk about next week, I think, who's this incredible guy who basically... Do you, do you remember that film, brilliant film, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind? The French guy in that, who's played by Truffaut, by the way. Truffaut's character is based on this guy Jack Vallee and um, Jack Vallee I think it's Vallee I think that's how you say his surname he is this kind of old school UFO researcher who's been going I mean fucking going a- enough you know like in the late 70s he was established enough for uh, to work with Spielberg and for Spielberg to say oh, I kind of need a character a bit like you you know so do you mind if I put like a fucking mad French guy in the film yeah, fine. You please, please do. And Valley is still going. Anyway, that's next week's episode. But he, he, um, Bigelow, hired Valley, or Valet. Maybe it's Valet. I don't know. I'll find out for next week. And he also hired Ian Stevenson. Anyone that knows anything about um, reincarnation knows that Ian Stevenson is the the basically the kind of Yoda of um, reincarnation science and um, research. He wrote a series of incredibly influential books on reincarnation and uh, and a couple of other like very heavy duty, you know, kind of researchers on on his panel as well. Yeah, So Bigelow did that uh, for a couple of years. He bought this place called Skinwalker Ranch, which is very interesting, like really extraordinary, quite spooky and bizarre place, Skinwalker Ranch. And uh, he also started Bigelow Aerospace and Bigelow Aerospace is looking to go up into space soon in order to essentially like he's kind of basically confirmed that his idea with one of the things he wants to do in Bigelow Aerospace is to look at these particular metals. So, so like it's basically been reported if not totally kind of confirmed but you can read between the lines if you kind of look into this world enough you can read between the lines that there is um, like metals from crashed UFOs that have the um, isotopes they have the kind of uh, structure that we don't have on the planet okay we don't have these metals on the planet and yet they're on this planet because they came down here or off of various UFOs, okay? So these little bits of metal, they're trying to figure out how to make these metals and uh, Bob Lazar, if you know Bob Lazar, he worked at uh, S4, is it S4 I think, or S2, S somewhere, on Area 51 and he came out in the um, late '80s, I think was it '89, yeah. And he came out saying, "Yeah, I worked at Area 51." This is one of the things he described the kind of process of making these metals. And so, um, apparently, though, you can't make them with gravity, like in the in the air, you know. So, one of the things, like unbelievably, one of the things that um, Bigelow wants to do is to recreate the making, well, basically make these metals in a zero-gravity environment, okay? So he's going to take up, I don't, he's very unclear. I think it looks like, reading between the lines, it looks like he might be working with the U.S. government. And Jack Valley and he, and a couple of other people kind of high up in the world of UFO research, are quite happy that some of this is kind of not known by the public, okay? And you've got to kind of read between the lines a little bit in terms of what they're telling us and the signals they're giving off in interviews and stuff. But as far as I can tell, the idea is that he is going to try to recreate um, uh, a metal, a kind of metamaterial, as they're known, in. Um, zero gravity. And the most famous is El- element 115. Element 115 was recreated, uh, and then it kind of became, became very unstable, but it was recreated a couple of years ago, and they're trying to work that out, and they're trying to get the isotope balance for it to be um, a stable material, Yep. Yeah. So anyway, there we go. There's Robert Bigelow. If you want to know more about Bigelow, then uh, contact him at Bigelow.com. Bigelow, Bigelow at bigelowaerospace.com, and just Google him, Google him. Right, see you later for Jacques Vallée. Thanks for listening.